This morning, our text, our text is uh, the whole chapter of uh, the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, but our reading this morning comes from verses 19 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Join me in a short prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray for the preaching of the word that's happening across many different churches, many different states, many different countries, and all sorts of different contexts. I pray that you would be with the believers, the worldwide church this morning who have already met and who have yet to meet. I pray that your spirit would go forth, as we know it will, because you promised it to us. I pray now for this church, for this congregation, that our hearts would be open to what you would show us, and that your son would be lifted up. Amen. Well, like I said this morning, we're going to focus on the uh, ninth chapter of... Uh, Corinthians, and so I'm going to walk through it, and then um, at the end, uh, well, and then I'm going to focus mainly on verses 19 through 23. Um, but I want to begin with this uh, story. I heard a preacher, an African American preacher, black preacher, um, preach on this on this text, and he asked a question, and I'm going to relay that question to you. He he told the story about being an African American preacher. He's the minority in our denomination, the PCA, um, and he is asked quite frequently by different uh, churches and by different elders and by very well-meaning people, um, hey, look, our community is diversifying. Uh, we're getting all sorts of, um, we're ethnically diverse, and we want to reach out to the African-American community. What can we do? What can we do to uh, reach out to them? And he appreciates the question, and he, he tells the story of, of, of him responding in many different ways he said, but the one church that really stuck with him um, was the most honest church he'd interacted with. And they said this. They said, what can we do to reach out to our community? It's diversifying um, around us, and we're, we're primarily a white congregation. We want to reach out to our African-American um, people around our church. And uh, they said, what can we do differently uh, but not change anything we do? <laughs> right? And they were honest about it because he said, you know, most churches, when they ask, what can we do, they leave that last part out. <laughs> what can we do, but we don't want to change anything about us? And that's an interesting question. And he says, look, for the sake of the gospel, and he goes on to preach his sermon. But I want that question to resonate with you right now in this room. Uh, what can we do, even if it means doing things differently for the sake of the gospel? What do we need to keep doing, even though it's hard, for the sake of the gospel? 
Keep that question in the back of your mind as we walk through this passage, because that's certainly what Paul wants us to be thinking about. Now, the context for this, for our, uh, for our text this morning, is that the previous chapter, Paul addressed the struggle that was happening in the church regarding the question of uh, eating meat served to idols. And there was disagreement about in the congregation in Corinth about should we eat, should we be allowed to eat the meat or should we not? Pastor Lloyd addressed this last week and Paul, he said, and Paul says, uh, he encourages the church not to eat meat previously used in pagan worship if it caused some brothers or sisters to go against their conscience. And he said, for the sake of building up brothers and sisters, don't do this. There's nothing wrong with eating meat served to pagan, to, to, to idols, but for the sake of our congregation for unity, please don't do this. You see, loving others in the church was more important to Paul than individual rights or preferences. The principle of loving people in the community of God trumped boasting about individual rights. That's the context that we're dealing with. Now, we come to our chapter this morning, and we see that Paul applies the same principle he had just addressed to the whole of Christian life. Now, not just to eating meat served to idols, but to the whole of Christian life, the same principle. And he begins chapter 9 by reasoning that he has acted as an apostle who has worked and labored over the church in Corinth. He writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord, uh, seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship to the Lord. This is my defense for those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, meaning Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who, sol- who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Of course, these are rhetorical questions, but the idea here is that Paul was an apostle who preached and taught and labored over the church in Corinth. And he had a right to compensation. It's interesting to note here that even in verse 5, he, he goes for, so far as to say that he has a right to bring a spouse along in his ministry. And some, some academics think that he, what he means by that is he has a right for him and his spouse to be supported financially. Peter certainly did. He goes on to use a metaphor, which he will do again later, by stating, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? He then goes on in a few verses later to quote Moses from Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, meaning those who do the work have a right to enjoy the fruits of its labor, of their labor. What specific fruits, you might ask? Paul goes on in verse 11 and he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? It's as if Paul is saying, look, I have the right as one who has preached to you to receive monetary compensation for my work. It's consistent with the biblical commands from Moses. But even more so, in the culture of that day, in Paul's culture, in the Greco-Roman culture of that day, he would have been expected to receive compensation for his work. You see, when orators or teachers and philosophers would roam from place to place and educate civilians of all sorts in different philosophies or different religions, it was expected that they would get paid for doing so. 
That's why he says, look, I'm the apostle. Am I not an apostle? I'm the one who came and preached and teach to you. It was expected that they would be paid. In verse 13 and 14, Paul gives another example. He says, do you not know those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul is effectively saying preachers and pastors have the right to be paid for their labor. And we know this from the Bible. And also, this is our normal cultural standards, right, guys? That's what he's arguing. Now, before we go on, we have to, we have to address something that can and does take place in churches all over the world, and it has throughout the history of time. It's not just unique to our culture and our time. But preachers can abuse texts like this to demand money to live exorbitant lifestyles, Right? We've all seen it. We've all seen the, the ridiculous televangelists asking for more money. We've all seen the exposés on television um, uh, showing the uh, ridiculous lifestyles that many uh, preachers can live, many wealthy preachers live. And let me just tell you that that is nothing short of wicked behavior because the motivation for preaching is more often not the greed of material wealth, isn't it? We've seen that. The prophet Ezekiel warns against shepherds who abuse their sheep by stealing money from them. And the punishment for these thieves is severe, and they are thieves. And I hope you show discernment when you give money to organizations that claim to be Christian. I would encourage you, uh, one of the beautiful things about our system, it's not perfect, but one of the beautiful things about uh, our system, our Presbyterian system, is that there's checks and um, balances in many different ways. Uh, there's elders elected by you, the congregation, that keep track of the money. There's congregational meetings where we vote on budget and these types of things. I know that may seem unimportant to some of you, but it's actually vastly important. It mitigates, oftentimes, the abuse that can happen. And does abuse still happen with all those checks and balances? Yes, it does. You see, the, the proper question here is one of motivation. What is your motivation for preaching the gospel? What is your motivation for being a disciple of Jesus, of going forth, of making and maturing disciples of Jesus? What should that motivation be for a Christian, a disciple for all of us? Well, Why Paul acknowledges that he does have a right for compensation, he also points out in verse 12 and continuing on in verse 15 that he made no use of these rights. He says, I made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die. Think of this. I would rather die. That's what he writes. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. He shows the church that there is something greater that compels him to proclaim the gospel than recognition or material gain. He states, for necessity is laid upon me. That's what he said. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, 
so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's saying here that he has, he has to preach the gospel despite the rights that come along with that because he has been entrusted with the responsibility of something so magnificent, so beautiful, so wonderful, namely the gospel, the good news. It's as if he was saying, I would do this for free. Actually, I must do this because it is that good. The task of proclaiming the gospel is better than the individual rights that I get from it. The reward Paul gets from teaching the gospel is in fact reward enough. The mission of going and making disciples by teaching them all that Christ has given Paul is reward enough for Paul. By the way, we've been given that same mission. Look at the language. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's a personal statement there. That's emotional language. He's not just doing it for the perks, and he'd even do it at personal expense. And in fact, we know that he did, right? Oftentimes, he'll, he'll refer back to the, the times where he was stoned, or the times that he was cast out, or the times that he was derided, or the times that he was mocked, or the times that he was beaten, as proof that he's not doing this for material gain or for personal recognition. A while back, I heard another preacher... Uh, pa- uh, another pastor preached on this, this passage, and he used this example. His name's Mark Mitchell. He's a, he's a mentor of mine. He, I, I love his preaching. He referenced a song uh, by Joni Mitchell. You guys know, remember Joni Mitchell? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Joni Mitchell. It's called Real Good for Free. And uh, she describes a musician in this song, Joni Mitchell, playing the clarinet uh, in, for free in the midst of a bustling city. Picture something like New York City. And she, she writes that he was phenomenal and he displayed his skill for free as the people walked by. She actually reflects on that and says, wow, that's incredible. What's his motivation? Why is he doing this? Why is this clarinet player who could charge a bunch of money doing this for free? She writes in one of her songs, now me, this is Joni Mitchell, I play for fortune and those velvet curtain calls. I've got a black limousine and two handsome men escorting me to the halls. And I play if you have the money or if you're some, some kind of friend to me. But the one-man band by the quick lunch stand, he was playing real good for free. It's the joy of playing for this clarinet player. Joni Mitchell notices it. And it was the joy of the gospel itself that inspired Paul to preach. He could have claimed his rights. There were those who probably thought he should have. But Paul is offering up an example of what it looks like to minister out of the joy of the gospel, the joy that was produced by the gospel in his heart. His personal rights were not more important than the joy of which he proclaimed. Eugene Peterson, which I'll quote several times, so get used to this. Eugene Peterson put it like this. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It's a consequence. It's not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. It's not a requirement. It's a consequence. You might say, well, that's amazing for Paul. I mean, I'm glad he was so humble. It's easy to point to a personal example of righteousness when trying to instruct somebody. But Paul is not just writing 
to point out how good he is, although he does call his readers to follow his, his example, he is trying to witness to the church how valuable the gospel is, how life-transforming it is. You see, the good news of Jesus was the paradigm by which Paul understood his life, and it is for us too. He gives a glimpse into the outcome of a life that's been shaped by the gospel. It's how he saw the mission of a disciple. We reach our text this morning, finally, (laughs) and we have three things that I want us to observe and notice here. First, what is this mission of a disciple? What is this life shaped by the gospel? What does it look like? What does joy produce? Let's look at the first one. First, he approaches his mission with the mindset of a servant. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now, we can understand this as Paul saying he tried to be available and helpful to everyone at his convenience, kind of like a super generous volunteer at a church. But remember, servants were an actual social category to his readers. Servants were given wholly to service and to the needs of their master. It was the antithesis of being available when it was convenient or if it fits into your weekend. Paul's approach was that he gave himself of others I gave, gave of himself to others, defaulting to their needs. That was his mindset, living the Christian life. Second, the value of service shaped the way Paul accomplished his mission, his methodology. He met the people where they were at. He laid down his preferences to accommodate others. Paul writes, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To those who do uh, recognize the law of Moses, I work within that system, Right? To those who were not under the law, I acted like I wasn't as well. To the weak or uneducated, and this, what does weak mean? It means uneducated, poor, marginalized communities. I became weak. It should be noted that Paul did not cast aside all morality in order to fit in with the pagan culture around him. He writes that he did not break Christ's law or sin in order to relate to pagans. He means that he did not live by the Jewish purity and cleansing laws. What would that have looked like? He ate with pagans. He dined with them. He befriended them. He worked with them. He talked with them. He engaged with them. Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary who served in China for 51 years. Think about that. 51 years serving in China. He was an Englishman. And uh, initially, he was having a hard time gaining traction with his audience. Now, he dressed like an Englishman, would have have in the the mid-1800s, late 1800s, with a fitted suit and short hair and a beard. And he changed over time and started dressing in traditional Chinese robes and grew long braided hair the back of his head in order to gain credibility with the local community. His mission was even non-denominational, accepting all those who wish to see the gospel go forth and disciples of Jesus made in China. He had men and women employed in fighting the opium trade, starting schools and planting missions. Conservative estimates tell us that his mission was responsible during his lifetime and certainly right after for 18,000 conversions in China. Think about that. 
18,000 conversions, and his mission is still going on today. Lastly, Paul reminds his readers of the motives behind his actions. He writes, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. What are the blessings of the gospel? Paul helps us with a few sports analogies at the end of the chapter here. He writes, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Uh, I looked this up in, in, in the commentary, and I don't know if this was like a, a commentator's joke or not, but um, he said, look, the, the, the crowns that they would have would be like um, withered, um, uh, oh, what's the vegetable? Celery. That, so this is true. Okay, this guy, all right. Withered celery uh, stalks that they would put on there as a crown, right? This is true. Okay, I believe you. Um, all right. I thought it was his joke. Like, who would want that? But that's a thing. Um, and, uh, and that's what they would get. And recognition certainly came with it, and fame certainly came with it. And, uh, and, and, and that's the, but that's the best version of the crown that they would get. My, my daughter, actually, uh, she, was, she just got done with track and field day at Cayuse Prairie. And actually, they, a bunch of schools gathered at Fairmount Egan. And she came home, and she was so proud, and I was very proud of her, too. She was so proud that she got third place, out of all these schools, third place for the second-grade girls in the standing long jump. Third place. That's right. My daughter. <laughs> I was proud of her, and she was proud. And she got fifth place in the fork relay. I don't know what that means. Uh, but I was proud of her, and she was proud of her, and she went to her room, and she pinned up the ribbons, right, where she keeps all, her, all the th- important things to her. She was so proud of that. Do you guys remember that first time you won something? Oh, that was cool, wasn't it? You got recognition for something. Paul says here that the, that the runners, they deprive themselves of things that they have a right to in order to train their bodies but their motivation is just an earthly reef or a ribbon for placing in the race. It's great, but let me show you something greater. Disciples of Jesus recognize that our prize is in heaven, and it's an eternal prize. It doesn't lose its value. It doesn't wither or go away. In the letter to the Colossian church, Paul writes, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your minds on things above. The motivation for Paul to become all things to all men as a servant to others was a bigger view of eternity than what was strictly before us. It's like Paul saying, open your aperture. Think bigger. Now that sounds wonderful, but don't let the metaphor wash over you. Uh, In Paul's context, he was most likely referring to the Olympic Games and sports metaphors. Uh, We've heard them before. But think of what it takes for someone to win, to go to an Olympic game. You have to be the best of the best, right? And then to medal in it, it takes incredible discipline. And in Paul's day, that means you would deny yourself. And one of the things that they would deny themselves was meat, among other things, while you were training. 
Paul often refers to the Christian life as a long race. You've heard the metaphor before. Eugene Peterson wrote one of my favorite books on being a disciple of, of Jesus with a very appropriate title. He wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's actually a phrase borrowed from Frederick Nietzsche, uh, his work on the natural history of morals. But nevertheless, Peterson loved that phrase, and he let it sink in. And this is what he wrote. He said, Fear God. Reverence might be a better word. Ah. The Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. What it is interested in is the response we have to him. Will we let God be as he is, majestic and holy, vast and wondrous? Or will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our small minds? Insist on confining him within the boundaries we are comfortable with. Refuse to think of him other than in the images that are convenient to our lifestyle. But then we are not dealing with the God of creation or the Christ of the cross, but with the dime store reproduction of something made in our own image, usually for commercial reasons. You see, being a disciple of Jesus means doing the hard work of looking at ourselves and asking ourselves, are we keeping God as he is? Are we keeping his mission where it should be in the lives, in our lives, the center of our lives? Or have we replaced him with an idol? We don't drift towards service, humility, or striving for righteousness, just like we don't drift toward Olympic caliber athleticism. We do the opposite. Idols emerge from deep in our hearts, oftentimes without our notice. We have a proclivity to turn preferences, legal rights, cultural rights, constitutional rights into idols. Idolatry will always derail us from our mission to follow Jesus and teach others to follow him. So Paul encourages us, remember the immeasurable treasure that we have, the goal that we're striving toward. Let me ask you, what is so valuable in your life right now that you would not lay it down to become more like Jesus? What is so valuable in your life that you would not lay it down to help others do the same? That's a hard question to ask ourselves. Because if you're anything like me, you'd like to believe that our default mode is that there's nothing that we wouldn't lay down. Oh, but there is. Here's the good news. Jesus laid everything down for you and I before we laid down anything for him. Jesus laid everything down on the cross despite our unwillingness to lay anything down for him. And Jesus lays everything down on the cross in spite of our unwillingness to lay everything down for each other. That's the good news of the gospel. Not only that, but he promises to recreate this heart in us. Can you believe that? He not only did what we couldn't do, but he's doing what we don't want to do. He's recreating that in us. When we confess our idols to him and let him do the hard work of transformation, and it is hard work. It is training. It is discipline. Eugene Peterson writes, We are traveling in the light toward God, who is rich in mercy and strong to save. 
It is Christ, not culture, that defines our lives. It is the help we experience, not the hazards we risk, that shapes our days. The high school group has been studying the book of Revelation for this last year in in our Wednesday night youth ministry, and we just finished it this last week, and we were all excited. We were all excited. But in the book of Revelation, uh, John encourages Christians to continue on, despite the, uh, the growing Roman persecution that was happening to his readers. And he's given several pictures of heaven, and he's trying to encourage his readers to endure, to avoid imperial worship. But the most tender visions that he has are those of Jesus with his saints, gathered around his throne, worshiping him. And in these visions, his followers are clothed in white. They're they're made pure, they're made holy. But the most beautiful and the most glorious and the most majestic thing about these visions is not how good the people are. It's how beautiful Jesus is. He's at the center of the throne. He is our heavenly thought. That is the heavenly blessing that the gospel gives us. It's Jesus. We get him. Those who set their minds on things above will not grow tired in the race, tired in the race, even though it is difficult. But when we see him, everything else fades away. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, children, do not let your heart make into idols what will take us away from our mission, what will prohibit us from loving one another. The mission is the vision of Jesus. Confess what is sin, turn to Jesus in a long obedience. In his direction, so that you too may share in the blessings to be used for the sake of the gospel. What is the answer to your question? What must you do? What must you change for the sake of the gospel? The only way that's going to happen is if Jesus becomes more beautiful in your life. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray that as you recreate in us your heart, as you did for Paul, that we would practice obedience, we would strive in the race. And by doing so, we can put everything in this world in its proper context. We can become what we need to become. We can do the things we need to do. We can lay down our preferences and our rights to love each other and to love you to carry forth your mission. What a wonderful promise you've given us that you will recreate in us the joy of the gospel. Thank you, Father. Amen.